This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You probably don't have a ton of infrastructure and the idea that you need a credit card to establish credit is, you know, on its face, just absurd. Um, not only can you not get a credit card, but there's no bank. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Hey listeners, this is David Jakobovich from the Humane Podcast. We live in challenging times with complex financial markets. Lex Sokolin joins us from the UK to share how you can be a part of the new economy. How can you make investment decisions driven around machine and human economies? How real is the debate around privacy across America, Europe, and China? Is capitalism dead as we know it? Learn all this and more on today's episode of Humane. Tune in now. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Humane Podcast, where we're discussing how to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. Today, our guest is Lex Sokolin, who is an expert in financial uh, entrepreneurship, advisory, robo-advisors, taking decentralization into the new economy, and is joining us from the United Kingdom. Thanks for being here, Lex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, you know, 2019 and we're halfway into it almost, it feels, and there's so many new projects happening and, and you've been a part of a lot of tech. Uh, what are you seeing as some of the new trends going on in your industries? I mean, isn't it amazing that it is uh, 2019? It just it just sounds so futuristic <clears throat> to be in, in this year. I feel like um, if you look at most of the 1980s action movies by 2019, you know, the world's either destroyed or we're levitating. So um, maybe it it kind of sucks that, you know, we haven't uh, haven't gotten there. Uh, But we do have a lot of artificial intelligence in our economy already. Everything from, you know, the very first time you touch the internet through Google to, um, you know, putting a a filter on um, like a Snapchat interface all the way through to interacting with like, financial products broadly. So banking, investing, lending, insurance, all of that stuff that used to be intermediated by human beings, um, massively, massively uh, targeted by artificial intelligence companies now. So, um, you know, happy to open that up, but I'm seeing symptoms for AI and finance um, everywhere from the consumer to, you know, the portfolio manager. 
There's a lot of great products that I think consumers can look at in finance, as you mentioned. Um, here in the United States, you know, some of these big products are Robinhood with the trading and automation. You have Chime, this new you know online bank to uh, have these interest rates, and and then you even have apps, um, as you mentioned, maybe in that robo space where you invest so many dollars a month, and it you know creates a self-directed portfolio. Uh, I think. The financial markets are very quickly decentralizing and very quickly becoming an app economy. Uh, you've been a part of you know quite a bit of this. Uh, what do you find most fascinating about the change of wealth with all this technology? Yeah, so I think you know technology is um, it's an interesting catch-all because really it just it's um, it's a word that reflects the tools that we as human beings have to be effective. And when we use sticks and fire, we, we use technology. When we invent languages, we, ha- we have technology. When we do physics and math, um, that's technology. So, you know, in the last decade, what we've really seen is the digitization of <clears throat> all the industries from uh, media to retail to now finance and healthcare and, and more broadly to like the core of society as a whole. So, you know, symptoms of the of the latter would be, you know, propaganda bots being able to influence elections. That is technology used for kind of a, a civic purpose. But in finance, you've had, um, you know, you've had about 20 years of um, automation and the automation is shifting from kind of top down defined automation. So like you used to fill out a piece of paper for opening an account. And now you can key some things into your phone or you can take a picture of your passport to open an account. And that is really straightforward, rules-based, deterministic kind of replacement of a a workflow with a couple of data points um, by a software version of the same thing. The other version of automation, which is um, more threatening and more meaningful and kind of fundamental, is machine learning on top of large data sets. And you know, it's obviously super buzzy and people say these things and don't really mean anything when they, when they say it. But realistically, this, this is the, the truth where uh, all the services that used to be physical and terrestrial now have um, digital chassis that create data exhaust. Um, so you know, anytime we go on a site, that's captured. Anytime we sign anything, that's captured. How we move our mouse uh, on a robo-advisor site is captured. Um, you know how we put in credit card information. The speed between the keystrokes uh, is captured. So all that data exhaust can then be used to power decision making, and you can get thousands and thousands of data points for credit decisions, lending decisions, insurance decisions, investment decisions that you never just would have had in the past. So. When I look at, you know, some of the folks that you mentioned, I think those companies are definitely innovating on the on the way that clients interact with financial products. It's like having it in your pocket is definitely cool and interesting and fast. Um, but the next step after that is um, using new types of um, this data exhaust to take human judgment and you know, remove the human from it and have it run kind of on autopilot. And that does a lot of things um, that are unanticipated. The very first thing is is uh, it just makes it way cheaper to manufacture financial product. Um, and that's, you know, that's the second step to um, to making product, to making it more accessible. So it's not just that you can get a bank account at a regular bank easier. It's that, um it can be done on the fly on your phone by a thin algorithm that just knows a little bit about you. And then, um, you know, not to go totally to the moon, but you can split the stuff out in the next step of, well, if you, if you're doing it in such a lightweight manner, maybe you can posit it on a decentralized network and then you can have communities in a real peer to peer fashion, fulfill some of the promise of what the early internet pioneers had imagined. And, you know, translating that for the consumers, I think we're moving in that direction, 
right? So today we're seeing all these digital apps where your data exhaust has allowed you to have these apps in your phone, your mobile device. You've been able to uh, use new technologies at the banks, uh, at your workplace, and where you live. Um, but the consumer hasn't necessarily benefited that much from using them other than having an easier accessible way to use these apps. So then the question is, um, what's next and how do consumers take back their rights or take back their privacy or take back their wealth? And it sounds like some of the work you're doing in you know, the, the decentralized space could lead to that and wanted to hear your thought leadership there. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, the that first step, I think the, the Chinese examples are really mind bending, especially for Americans who are so used to the the segregation between media, technology and finance. You know, so let's say you are living in a rural community. There is no bank or bank branch. Um, you probably don't have a ton of infrastructure. And the idea that you need a credit card to establish credit is, you know, on its face, just absurd. Um, not only can you not get a credit card, but there's no bank. Um, and if it, there were a bank, there's no information based on which they could make a decision. So instead, you get a mobile app on your phone because phones are more distributed than banking services. Um, and that that mobile app is supposedly a, you know, a, a private company that lets you message and buy stuff on the mobile web, but realistically is a government app that tracks all your interactions. And it tracks your shopping behavior, it tracks your messaging behavior, it tracks whether you play video games or if you're studying, it tracks your health, um, it tracks your grades if you're in school. Um, and so this kind of third-party information in WeChat or, or you know, in uh, for Ant Financial, that's actually used to underwrite your credit decision. Like, what's a credit decision? Well, let's say you're uh, you're a kid from this rural community and you go to university, you're accepted. Well, you don't have any money, so you can't buy any books. So you go to the bookstore to buy your textbooks. How do you buy your textbooks? You buy them on credit. Um, how is that credit decision made? Well, you scan your messaging app, and the messaging app knows if you've been, you know, naughty or nice, and that's called the social credit score. So that's an example, and all this stuff, right, is machine learning based. So you know, 800 million or so users um, in China power the the engine for the algorithmic decision making there. So that's an example of something like a financial product, like a credit product, being made available on the data exhaust that you know an American bank would literally have no idea and honestly failed to do anything with when the US had the lead on this technology 10 years ago. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two is uh, the sort of decentralization um, direction. So of course, the last um, three years have been challenging in, in many ways, and, and one of them has been just kind of the realization of the price that we paid for free services, right? So it's 2002, and it's cool to pirate music, and you get it all on your iPhone, and it's great. Um, but and you, you look at the music labels who are saying, you know, buy CDs, and you think of them as dinosaurs. And so we, we've had a generation, including myself, trained on this idea that the internet is free. Uh, and of course, the it's not free, it's just that you're paying a price you don't know about. And now we figured out what that price is. And that price is that essentially we don't get to make our own decisions. We get to be um, educated by machines about you know how we should um, what we should purchase, i.e. advertising, who we should vote for, um, and so on and so forth. So that's a high price because now that we know it, so we want to kind of um, address it. But to address it, you really need to shift this model of consume consume for free and, and um, become the product. And so I see a lot of solutions coming out of the decentralization space where um, whether it's your data or whether it's your money or whether it's this this sort of uh, tracking of your behavior or if it's medical information, all of that stuff 
um, goes back into your power through you know some version of of tokenization and communities. Um, and um, it's very interesting to watch. It's also really difficult to implement, and I think people got burnt quite quite a lot by it. But whether you know Facebook does it or whether some crypto project does it, almost besides the point, because the general direction is that I think people will have on their own phones, on their hardware, on their computers, much more control uh, over over this data and whether they you know opted into the services or not. And so whether we call it the crypto or blockchain movement, um, it sounds like from your examples on China with you know WeChat and Ant Financial and this social credit system that there's, to me, two directions society's moving. It's either moving a social credit uh, system or a capitalistic system. And that's often how you know Europe and America have defined themselves versus the Eastern Asian um, uh, cu countries. So um, I'm curious if products that you're beginning to talk about, JP Morgan's coming out with a coin, Facebook's coming out with a coin, are these products that could work theoretically in China? Yeah, so um, it's a great, it's a great um, point and area of discussion because it's so tricky. You know, um, a few symptoms to think about. The first is the space race, the initial space race, funded by the government, by sovereign powers in uh, the Soviet Union and in the US. The internet, funded by the government, it's a military network, right? Um, so it's not the rule that all all consumer apps come from the private sector. You know, it's 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 been the trend um, in thirty or forty years of Silicon Valley, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the absolute rule. Um, and so we can definitely imagine a world, right, where. Um, the Chinese, the massive, massive government investment in China and artificial intelligence and blockchain and various frontier technologies, that that is successful, you know, because that you you deal with the fixed cost of research and development by this massive government spending. And so I think the U.S. is fairly disadvantaged there because um, having an aggressive R&D policy doesn't doesn't seem to be really what the U.S. is about these days. Um, number two, a second point is that actually I think there's a lot more similarity between um, capitalism and dictatorship than um, than maybe comes at first glance, right? So you kind of have this view of um, capitalism as lots and lots of firms competing with products and the best wins, and you know these are entrepreneurs and it's flexible and all that. Um, in reality, what happens after a while is that you, especially in monopolizable industries like attention, right, Google and Facebook, um, or finance, Visa, MasterCard, JP Morgan, um, you have really asymmetrical markets where, you know, most of the winnings are controlled by very few players. This is true for professional athletes, right? A couple of professional athletes make a hundred million bucks and the rest, the rest are fine, but they don't make that money. There's only one Justin Bieber, right? Like this, this is a, a the power laws happen over and over and over again. So capitalism allows for sort of that selection mechanism to occur, but then at the end of it, you're, you're left with the, these monoliths. And if you've ever worked on Wall Street, um, and, and I have, what you find is that they are run like um, they are run like hierarchical, um, you know, Soviet Union style organizations. So if you are on a strategy team in a, you know, what you would think of as a very capitalist, in, you know, investment bank institution, in fact, what you're doing is putting together five-year strategy plans and financial models with targets for your staff to hit. That is. You know, both China and the Soviet Union had a lot of five-year plans to hit targets. So the management style within the large organizations is very, very similar. You know, so when I think about like JPM or Facebook trying to go build a product, and when I think about 
China as a whole trying to build a product, I do think of both as very top-down processes. Um, and it's tough for me to imagine sort of an American monopoly or oligopoly competing very successfully within the Chinese borders. It just, it's, I, I think it's essentially we're locked out from that geography. Um, but the other direction is this more like open source decentralized direction, which is um, less profit driven and more um, maybe humanistic. It's certainly more idealistic. And I'm not espousing the philosophy of the, you know, the crypto ecosystem. That's, I don't want to kind of celebrate that approach, but I do think there's, um, there's a truth to what sharing and open source systems can do and how they can leak around um, large, um, large and powerful organizations in the way that media and Twitter could leak around, you know, um, uh, Turkey and Egypt and their controls on information um, in the same way that um, the tech companies are kind of getting into finance by leaking around and building things at the extremes. I think that um, an open source decentralized version of these products, whether they're finance or, or entertainment or any other version of it, um, they can be shared much more easily and they do have censorship resistance. And I do think that's new and interesting. And it's kind of a final point in that story. You know, people are running Android software on their Google phones. Um, that's, not, that's not correct. Uh, they're, they're running Android on all sorts of, all sorts of um, manufactured phones. And Android is, you know, the most popular operating system in the world. And of course, it's an open source operating system. So I think there are examples where these open solutions win and succeed. Um, but I don't think that there's a, a very good sense right now for how the decentralized movement will actually do that. I get a sense from what you're sharing and as an aha moment for me is that we're very much moving to a zero marginal cost society. Uh, in fact, you know, in 2015, Jeremy Rifkin came out with a book by that name, The Zero Marginal Cost Society, about how products in this digital age no longer cost so much to print and so much to deliver uh, because you produce the product once and that cost is finite and then it can scale across and be distributed to um, all users. And it, it sounds like um, whether we're looking at new financial robo-advisory products um, or products that are powered by your social capital, these are all distributed. These have very low marginal cost. And, um, and this is a direction that we're moving towards. And I don't think it's just uh, a game of the United States versus the European Union, ex-EU, um, or, or China, but society as a whole. And from a macro level, uh, I think like if I'm someone who's a blue collar worker, I'm trying to think what's next, right? How can I manage my capital when uh, America and Europe are at negative growth or zero growth? And, you know, China's uh, on the brink of a recession, you know, just in the first few months of 2019, they've injected over $300 billion of capital into their economy as well. So uh, I think uh, the modes of finance are beginning to change. Sure. Um, there's definitely, you know, there's a couple of stories I, I tell around this. Um, one is across all financial services, we should expect pricing to collapse 50%. Um, that's driven by lower cost manufacturing and lower cost distribution. And it's happened to every other industry already, um, you know, starting with music and to, to retail and up. And so um, investment management costs 25 basis, costs a quarter of a percent rather than one and a half percent. Moving money costs uh, a tenth of a percent instead of 6% uh, internationally, right, transfer wise. Um, and, and insurance costs similarly down, you know, you pay for insurance when you drive your car, not because you have a car. Um, so all these things are for sure pulling apart um, these product first companies and reconstituting them 
at a much lower price point. And it's sort of it's rotating the industry from product first to customer first. And that's, you know, it's not an original insight, but it is 90 degrees from what finance is used to doing, right? Like, I don't really care that some company manufactures a bank account. What I care is that when I'm an Amazon, I can invoke that bank account in order to buy something. But I'm doing 2,000 other things at Amazon. So my interest in the bank account is nominal. It's very small. And so the sort of arrogance of the industry about how important these the, the manufacturing is, is something that's just going to be challenged with economics um, degrading over over the next decade or two. So I think that's that's that shift from pushing product to being pulled by a consumer um, is is definitely uh, quite painful to the industry. Now, whether that means the elimination of jobs, um, ver, you know, how to make how to think about the balance between the elimination of cost and potentially the elimination of lower skilled jobs versus the gains to the consumer from being able to access the stuff cheaper on demand more easily um, is definitely the jury's still out. Um, you know, and the thing about automation and finance is that the jobs that are threatened are not just the folks in the branch or that are doing the financial advice or selling insurance. Um, they're also the sort of the mid-skilled and the higher skilled jobs just as much, absolutely just as much. And you look at the lawyers who, you know, will charge you 1500 bucks an hour. Those guys are in trouble too, because I can get an AI to read 10,000 documents in the same time that one lawyer reads one document. So all of this stuff is going to be seeing um, massive bites taken out of the, the value chain. Generally speaking, as like uh, an observation on what people do with their time, that's a, a very good thing. Um, you know, as a throwback in the 1940s, a computer used to be a human being that sat in a room of 40 other people doing math, right? So those 40 people are no longer computers. Um, they, they've lost that job. So, so you could say that's, you know, that's progress. So the question is, um, how do you solve for the, the real damage it does to people's livelihoods? Um, and how do you solve for, I mean, and, and who has to solve for it? Like whose job is it to make sure that the people that are inevitably going to be fired, um, have a healthy, interesting, fulfilling human existence. And I think we, in the U S we're so confused about the responsibilities and where they fall, you know, like. Why is it, I, I will never understand why it's the role of your employer, the company you work for, why do they provide you your healthcare coverage? Why is your, you know, why is your capitalist employer paying for the healthcare of the employees? Why is your capitalist employer, you know, maintaining your re retirement? Like if I'm a startup and I've got two people and I'm, I barely raised any money, I can't really pay for anybody's healthcare or for anybody's retirement or any of the benefits. So, you know, it's a, it's a really arbitrary place to put taking care of people. Um, but it's, it's kind of the cultural outcome of the U S to, um, and for lots of structural reasons that that's where it sits. So, you know, I think we have to have a public debate about does the, does the government deal with the structural damage? Do the, large employers deal with the structural damage um what about the small employers they, i mean they can't they can't afford to do it in many cases um and um you know it's 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 a little bit depressing to look at the state of our politics and be like how are we going to deal with what is a, a spectacularly large existential question for all of humanity when um you know we can't stop tweeting at each other you know, the healthcare debate is a very fascinating one, especially for those in the United States. And uh, I've actually read up a lot on this and debated this with some colleagues. And it, it's actually a result of teacher unions. It's a result of post-World War One. It's the result of hospitals getting together back in the 1920s and 1930s 
wanting to provide these benefits for a very small population. But then what happened was this bandwagon effect of everyone saying, now we need to provide healthcare benefits. And, you know, fast forward into the 2000s, it's, it's state of the art. It's normal. If you, if you don't offer healthcare benefits, sorry, I'm not interested in your company. Uh, yeah. And you know. I mean, this, you know, end of the day, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's nonsense. It's a bad game theory equilibrium where in the prisoner's dilemma, you can't, you know, Neither party can change its position because they'd be worse off, um, but they are both worse off in the situation where where they are relative to what if if they both moved over, right? So um, the employer has no skill or interest in optimizing healthcare costs, and um, to put employees in a position where that you know they can't take a risk, they can't um, start up a company because their family is now not covered. Um, is also nonsense. Like if you want to encourage the most innovation um, and risk-taking by your population and you want to encourage sort of venture capitalism in that way, like of course being tied, getting the best healthcare from JP Morgan should not be the incentive that somebody in the technology group there has to think about. So it's total nonsense. Um, you know, I think there are better collective places to put healthcare than on the burden on the shoulders of uh, for-profit businesses. And I, and I, so so when you start touching things like, you know, uh, structural unemployment, structural unemployment, which is, which could be the result of AI in the you know in the trucking industries shortly, um, with things that Uber and Lyft are doing in the in the taxi industries. And increasingly in the services, as as those become more automatable, structural unemployment is a collective social issue um, that needs to be dealt with from a policy perspective by people who understand how the world looks like in 2040. Um, and I think we have a lot of information about what the world looks like in 2040 because we see what is being put together as the infrastructure for that moment. Um, so. You know, hopefully that only clarifies over time. And I think private voices like Bezos and Musk and Zuckerberg, who, despite all the other stuff that, you know, you can fault them for, who at least articulated some of the dangers around um, rushing into this and just, you know, slamming the car against a wall and not preparing for it. So maybe that's one way forward. And, you know, we're still hearing these voices from, as you mentioned, a lot of Silicon Valley heavyweights. And this year, when a lot of companies IPO, there'll be a lot of uh, millennial tech workers who will become instant millionaires. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and New York Times said this year there's going to be over 10,000 new millionaires in the United States once all these companies go public. And you think from a capitalist capitalist standpoint, what does that do to, to society? Does it raise rents? Do people need benefits any longer? And do they need those benefits in the first place from a healthcare perspective? I think um, the themes of structural automation, if we're going down that pathway, is there's many different um, parts of the industry that that looks at. Uh, I know with you, with your work at Autonomous and Autonomous Next, you talk about the crypto economy, artificial intelligence, robo-advisors, and, and many other fringe themes as well. And automation is going to affect everywhere, uh, but how can people best prepare to be a part of that? I want to launch a startup that I'm going to automate rather than I'm disincentivized to launch a startup because I'm locked into my employer healthcare plan that I can't leave the company or I need this benefit. And I think a lot of that is also perception versus reality. I think most people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s um, don't really need the health insurance as it's sold in America. I think it's a little bit overhyped and overpromised. Um, I think more uh, the direction we should consider moving is, is as you've mentioned, Lex, this decentralized direction uh, where accessibility is offered everywhere. Um, one recent story I read in the news a couple weeks ago, I wouldn't have read about it 
if it wasn't as a result of a scandal. So the scandal was the head of the Food and Drug Administration in the United States stepped down and resigned. But not much was shared about why this occurred. And I decided to look further into this and found out that in the last 15 years, there's been all these FDA-approved medical devices being used in hospitals like balloons when you're expanding a stomach for surgery uh, and other devices to hold up organs that have been malfunctioning. There have been staplers used to serve as uh, reattaching tissue that gets stuck when they're being used. And it's mind-blowing to think, why would the stapler just get stuck and then cause a life-threatening issue? But the thing is, these examples I'm sharing here have been hidden from the public. They're not accessible. It's locked away behind lawsuits and documents and um, by privilege of the government. So um, I, I think my hope and love to hear some of your insights there, given you know, your experience in both business and, and legal. Um, you know, what's a better path forward and, and where are you seeing um, some of that direction? So a lot of, you know, a lot of ideas there. Um, I think what's a good place to start? So, um, you know, in terms of the wealth being created, um, the trends are you know, unassailable and not, you know, they're sort of true and boring. And the truth, the they're true and boring in the sense that um, the population, uh, the distribution of wealth and income are getting more unequal and there's nothing anyone can ever do to stop at the end. Um, that, you know, th that's just it. There, There is literally zero, um, zero actions that will shift that. Um, and the the reason for it is that um, the inequality comes from um, really deeply rooted and unassailable um, structures of society, which is um, you you can model them out in a simulation, and this is just what happens, right? So you have let's say you have a simulation, a hundred people come to some geography. They compete for resources at the end of um, the end. They all have equal stature in the beginning because of a random distribution of events. At the end, some people have a high, you know, higher distribution of outcomes. Some people have lower distribution of outcomes. Great. Um, next generation, right? You you run again, people of equal ability, but with different sets of resources, such as owning a million dollar home in Palo Alto uh, or going, you know. Uh, being prepared for school by going to by going the private route and having SAT prep versus somebody who doesn't have access to that and comes from a broken home, right? You rerun that simulation and then you're going to have the 2080 rule repeat again, and so you'll have inequality in the next generation being increased. And you you do that over and over and over again, and over time, what you end up with is massive inequality. Um, and so you look at you know some of the old world countries where the history of wealth inequality, you know, like nobility goes back centuries and millennia, and you're gonna have, um, you know, embedded social castes that are very hard to move and are inflexible. The US is a very young country. And so, you know, we, we haven't fossilized in that way yet, uh, but it's just, it's kind of like the math of what happens when you give everyone equal opportunities, you'll have different outcomes. Um, so there's definitely a debate around like correcting for that starting point, which I think is, is a, is a, I mean, even if you take the most extreme view about um, correcting for people's starting point, you're, you're, never going to go far enough to to get rid of that inequality outcome. Um, and so I think that's just something um, now that it's so public, we have to find a way to live with and to make sure that everyone um, at the very least has a good, meaningful life where they're fulfilled in their craft and don't really care that Jeff Bezos, you know, like I enjoy using Amazon. I don't begrudge Bezos his $120 billion, uh, one bit because I can pay 10 bucks less on toilet paper. Like it's fine. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, there's an issue around there about coming to terms with it, about fulfilling lives, about social infrastructure, whether it's healthcare or retirement or basic income. 
uh, or access to services and privacy. Um, you know, I think there's uh, there's definitely a mental health issue in there as well because um, there are elements of our society that that create alienation and anger, and the internet winds that stuff up as opposed to finds mentally healthy ways to deal with these things. So you know, it's a it's a very challenging bundle, and I think again, these are community policy based questions that. Um, that are just arising out of the internet age. And the other part about the internet age is that it um, it accentuates inequality through these power laws. You know, so like, I think the large tech firms, as we've seen, they just trend towards monopoly. Like they, uh, the bigger they get, the better they get. That's different from 50 years ago, you look at some manufacturer of cars or some, you know, somebody that makes soup, like the bigger they get, the less connected they get to their consumers, the more stuck they get. So some entrepreneur can come in and disrupt them because they they know the customer better. Uh, Google knows the customer better than anyone uh, because they are bigger than anyone and therefore they have the best uh, returns to scale within machine learning. Like that's a flip to um, the basic economics of scaling a firm. You know, bigger usually means divorced from reality, and it's not the case with tech-first firms. Um, so that's another challenge from the internet age around how do we think about power laws? You know, and you talk about you can talk about Teddy Roosevelt doing the the trust busting in the beginning of the last century, like. It's the beginning of this century, and Liz Warren's out there wanting to to bust up the internet monopolies. And whether that's the right or wrong thing is sort of it, it isn't something necessarily. Um, you know, it's that's a hard question that's data driven, um, but it it bears asking because um, the implications of allowing attention to be gathered in that way does filter all the way through. Um, another example of that is, I think it was um, Kylie Jenner just became the youngest billionaire uh, uh, in the fastest time. So the way she did it is she sold lipstick, you know, and like she's got 700 or 70 million followers across all her platforms. Um, and, you know, not to disparage uh, being super popular and selling lipstick, but like, once this is another example of returns to scale, right? Like the built-in audience um, of the Kardashians accumulating with um, with interest over time, and then it becoming easier to monetize that by anyone from the clan um, is another example of like it's faster than ever before, and the returns are asymmetric. So, but but the constructive way to look at it is, you know, this is the system that we're functioning in. Uh, there is no going back of any kind. You can't, you know, you can't make the Kardashians unpopular. Uh, you can't put uh, Google, you can't remove the search engine. You can't uninstall everyone's apps on their phones and you can't turn off YouTube. So here we are. Um, and now the question is, again, how do, how do we give the people who don't win the lottery of these games, whether they're entrepreneurship or, or celebrity, um, the people who don't win these lotteries, how do we make sure that they have a meaningful, fulfilling life where they're practicing a craft that gives them meaning um, and where you know they're in a positive environment? And um, I think that is the challenge of, um, of our generation. Lex, do you have for yourself um, any mental health tactics that you use to keep yourself at baseline so you're constantly reminded that you are living a meaningful and fulfilling life? That is such a hard question um, because it's it's a really difficult challenge, especially you know for the uh, for entrepreneurs or people who are high performing and so, that's actually the wrong benchmark for anybody that you know seeks self-improvement and compares themselves to to others, which is you know everyone who has an Instagram account. Um, it's really really difficult, and it's not difficult in like you're personally failing. It's difficult in the sense of you're in a system that manufactures anxiety for you. You know, and I'll give you an example. Um, 
I remember it was, Bloomberg was still uh, the mayor of New York, and he wanted to ban uh, Leader Ricola, right? So if you, um, if you watch Super Troopers, Leader Ricola is like a punchline. Um, you shouldn't be drinking a Leader Ricola. It's probably bad for you. Don't do it. You know, drink some water. But if you need to drink a liter of cola, maybe like just get them in normal servings. Get like four cups, each one a quarter of a liter of cola. So Bloomberg, on his health kick, he was banning cigarette smoking. And he's like, you shouldn't be able to buy for three bucks like a glass with a liter in it. Um, and there was this massive pushback against Bloomberg being like, don't tell, don't take away our freedom to choose whatever we want to drink. Like if I want to eat this, I want to eat it. If I want to drink a whole liter of cola, I want to drink it. And I remember, you know, it's people who were saying this in large part should, were not in good health. Uh, they should not have been drinking that much cola. So the question is like, is that person, how did that person come to hold those super self-destructive beliefs? And the reason is they probably live across a Coca-Cola advertisement and see it every single day on their way to work and on their way home. And so there are billions and billions of dollars spent on forming these opinions and preference functions and consumers against any sort of unconsciously, right? Not, not in a way that is self-derived from first principles. Um, and this happens to all of us all the time. We're animals. The, you know, this is how we make, we're social animals. That's how we make opinions. So, you know, on the one hand, you have your personal willpower. And on the other hand, you have the 5 billion advertising budget or whatever it is of Coke. Um, and I know which one wins and it's not your personal willpower. And so in the same way, when you're on Instagram or Facebook, yeah, it's your personal willpower to stop scrolling and comparing while on the other side of it is about $50 billion worth of advertising spent that goes into paying MIT PhD scientists to develop a newsfeed to break down your behavioral defenses. So I have pretty low confidence that any of us individually will be able to, to fight these machines. I mean, we can't. Um, so, you know, from that perspective, it's a really hard thing to, to have, um, to have a mechanism that allows you to, to feel healthy and to feel good about your community. Um, and I, you know, I've tried different things. I've tried different practices. Um, the, the place to start is um, self-awareness and to just call the thing out by its name, right? So like, just be truthful in describing and understanding how you're living your life and what it is that you're doing. So like, you can do the destructive thing, but at least don't tell yourself you're not, you know, that's step one, um, admit you're an addict, right? And um, I think one practice that helps with that is journaling. So if you're writing every week and just kind of putting down your emotions, that's a way to flush your emotions out and um, have them be on paper and, and true. Um, and, you, you know, you don't need to share that. That's for you to think about. And then uh, number two, for me, I have a, like a visual arts practice. So I, I do a lot of drawing and, and design. Um, and that's kind of my outlet for, you know, putting putting the difficulties and the frustrations into, you know, into a form that's, that's productive. Um, and then number three, it's family and friends. Maybe that should be number one. But, but again, like life is super complicated, but people are actually very, very simple. Um, just watch any other mammals socialize in a hierarchy. Um, you know, so, so figure out a way to, to be surrounded by people that respect you and that can, you know, can be there emotionally, um, and with whom you can have uh, a relationship based on, on sort of that mutual giving. Um, and that, you know, th that's just the, the launch pad for building more health, whether that's a yoga or a fitness practice, or whether that's, you know, gratitude or helping others. Those are like the advanced techniques that I'm still striving for. So, you know, just the, the basics is, is I think what I said, knowing what's going on, um, have some sort of outlet and surround yourself with, with people who are real. 
Yeah, those are all really great tips uh, for our audience as we're moving into this accelerated world of crypto, of AI, of automation. I mean, we could say, oh, well, you know, all those tips, just be sure to grab a liter of cola, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, being very serious there, it's that um, I think that's important, right? Whether you're having in-person interactions, remote interactions, societies only going to get more digital, only going to get more automated. And if you don't keep things in perspective, then then that anxiety level keeps getting up. And uh, in this AI forward world, everyone's always talking about the fear of missing out, the fear of machines, the machines uprising. But I, I think I'm very optimistic. I think humans and machines are going to work together. I think the work you're doing at Autonomous with, with research and in fintech and, and crypto and, and many of the industries right now, I think there's a lot of hope, um, not just in the U.S. and in Europe, but I think globally. I think it's still a little early to tell who's going to win the race if we're going into that um, ethos of, you know, is it the China uh, economy or is it the U.S. European economy? But I think we're moving on that direction. And, uh, you know, here at Humane, it's just having a conversation. Right, having a conversation about that direction. And I uh, really appreciate you for being with us here today, Lux. My pleasure. Thanks for, for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll talk to you in the next one. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.